Empathy is one of the most important skills humans have developed for living and working together. Picturing ourselves in someone else's shoes is a critical part of our evolution. In fact, research shows that there is a part of our brain that's constantly on alert, trying to correct our natural tendency to be egocentric and make us compassionate to the people around us. Research also shows that doctors who take an empathetic approach, who take time to understand a patient's needs and concerns before discussing treatments, have a positive impact on health outcomes. Patients with doctors like this actually end up healthier in the long run. Meanwhile, in our world of engineering and design, there's a concept we call the design user. Our understanding of the needs and characteristics of that design user is the very foundation of our decisions. From the broad strokes of where a new signal is needed or what the design speed of a road should be, to the tiny details of street geometry and signal timing. But our patient isn't just a single design user. It's a community of travelers who have different needs and capabilities. Our job is to develop solutions to these problems and issues, but I constantly have to remind myself that my ideas are the ideas of an outsider. And while sometimes that's a good thing, I'm bringing my expertise, it's really important to listen to people who will use these places that we design and to try to put myself in their shoes when I'm coming up with solutions. As designers responsible for public streets, what is our responsibility when it comes to empathizing with the people who will use those streets? What can we do to better understand their needs and walk a mile in their shoes, so to speak, to create a transportation system that gets them from point A to point B safely and comfortably? From Tool Design Group, this is the new ease of transportation I'm Jennifer Toole. We are joined today by Peggy Martinez, founder and owner of Creative Inclusion, which is a company that's focused on improving accessibility for people with sight loss in technology, wayfinding, transit, recreation, travel, and entertainment. Her clients have included Amazon, Sound Transit, which is a transit provider for Seattle and the surrounding region, and the city of Seattle. In fact, she recently worked on Seamless Seattle, which is a project focused on a new wayfinding system for the city, which with Peggy's help will be much more accessible for people who are blind or have low vision. So welcome to the podcast, Peggy. Thank you. We also have Kristen Losey. She is a senior urban designer here at Tool Design with a degree in landscape architecture and two decades of experience in trail and landscape design planning, the public process, streetscape, and urban design. Um, Kristen has specialized in trails, shared use paths, bicycle and pedestrian plans, and has worked extensively with state DOTs and local government agencies. Welcome, Kristen. Thank you. Peggy, I know your work at Creative Inclusion is around making cities more accessible to people with disabilities in multiple ways, transportation being one of them. I saw a great quote on your website that a lot of the work that you do is around accessibility solutions that promote safety, independence, and dignity. And I thought that was such a nice way to describe the type of work you do and how it relates to empathy. So share with us some of your thoughts on how empathy um, has shaped the things that you work on. I myself am an active person. And Many, many people in, in my community want to be as active as, as we can possibly be 
in a safe and sort of independent way and and how empathy comes into play with regard to how things are planned is that when planners and designers take into account the needs of folks who are blind and, and have other disabilities, that is incredibly helpful because in, in some respects, we have guidance that sort of states exactly what to do. And there are other areas where the guidance doesn't really quite exist. So that is where the conversations with whether it be community groups or professionals who have, you know, experience with accessibility, those listening sessions um, being heard when planners really make that effort to understand the experience that our communities have. And, and when they do that, when they listen and really take into account how we're going to approach a situation from basically the design and the inception of something through to the completion and how something is actually implemented. To me, that is when I feel that I've been heard and that we've got a situation that we can work with, whether it be a, you know, a sidewalk or a campus or a street crossing. Yeah, yeah. And I'm glad you brought up the issue of design guidance because I often feel like, um, especially when it comes to accessibility, the design guidance only gets us about 30% of the way there. Um, and I want to come back to that. But first, I wanted to, to ask Kristen, um, in your work as a senior urban designer here at Tool Design, you've really worked on a broad array of different types of projects and different scales, um, but really all of it focused on helping people navigate through communities what are some examples of success stories where you feel that empathy has really been used to help better inform uh, your work? For me, empathy is really about centering my work on the people who will use the transportation facilities I plan and design, as, as you suggested. But I, I really try to go beyond the, the terms driver and bicyclist and pedestrian and really focus on the actual people and try and think about their needs. And then also as a professional, um, you know, our job is to develop solutions to these problems and issues. So we call on our expertise. You know, we try and do our best to stay abreast of best practices and learn from other projects. But I constantly have to remind myself that my ideas are the ideas of an outsider. And while sometimes that's a good thing, I'm bringing my expertise, it's really important to listen to people who will use these places that we, we design and to try to put myself in their shoes when I'm coming up with solutions. One example is a project we worked on where we were asked to redesign a plaza that went through an urban hospital campus to accommodate um, cars and bikes. So we were essentially asked with converting this quiet little plaza into a street. And the neighborhood stakeholders and the city were really vocal and insistent about this need for connectivity through the hospital campus. And yet the plaza was this place where people in the hospital would go um, and have a quiet moment. So the staff and the visitors and the patients, you know, that's, it's a stressful job um, and a stressful place to be. So having a real quiet space to sit um, and talk to people or be by yourself was really an important part of the experience there. So um, in this case, we exercise empathy by honoring the needs of the people who are there every day, not just the people who are passing through, and we design back in those um, gathering spaces and quiet seating spaces. All right. That's a great example. And I really, I think 
this issue of perspective is so important because almost all transportation professionals drive a car. Probably most of them, the way that they get to and from work every day is is a car trip, at, at least at some point on that journey. And that gives them a sort of baked-in empathy for drivers. Um, they may not have as much experience biking and walking and taking transit or using a wheelchair or navigating with vision disabilities, and it makes it difficult for them to empathize with people who get around that way. So for planners, designers, and engineers who are trying to serve a demographic or population that they don't themselves represent, what are some practical things steps that, that they could take to learn and understand those perspectives. Um, and m- maybe we'll go first to you, Peggy. I think spending time with the communities that will be using the space that, that you are designing for is key. Plan to spend time with and understand as best you can um, the needs of those groups. Not only to do listening sessions and and that kind of thing, but also um, spend time uh, out in in the wild, so to speak, with folks uh, with lived experience who can point things out that are either working really well for them or are problematic. The time spent in in really understanding at the level where the person is, you know, sort of the rubber meets the road, if you will, is crucial so that you're not just sort of theorizing about what you think people might need or want. I think kind of at a a higher level, we really need to dedicate time and budget to doing the homework that's necessary to understand our audience. And as Peggy said, it really involves a lot of listening before we even start to think about solutions. And then ideally, we can include those people in the development of the solutions, in the decision-making, testing, and the iteration, I think that's that's really important. I did a, a walk with Peggy a few years ago where we looked at some innovative street designs like protected bike lanes and floating transit islands. And I learned more in a couple hours with her than I have in years of practice. One kind of poignant um, example is we were looking at a place where um, there was a pedestrian crossing of a bike facility and uh, the words look were stenciled on the pavement there. And here I was standing with someone who was trying to teach me about being blind and low vision. And I thought that is the most ableist example ever. You know, some people can't look. We need to come up with better solutions than just using words. So that was something that from your desk you might not understand. But being out in the field, you would really um, get an amazing experience. Peggy, you're in a really unique position of being a person with a vision disability and also working with people who have vision disabilities. Um, You have a really deep and personal perspective on the benefits of incorporating empathy into our work. And what would be some really practical ways to, to make a street environment work better for people who, like Kristen said, they, they can't look to see what's coming? The primary tools that people who are blind and and low vision use when when navigating anywhere, really, are tactile in nature and high contrast. So when there are edges and borders along sidewalks, let's say, between the sidewalk and uh, and the curb where, you know, the, the street furniture line is, if there is some kind of a tactile 
indicator that keeps people away from that path where all of the, you know, poles and fire hydrants are. That can be very useful. High contrast striping for crosswalks can be very useful for people who have low vision. Um, properly aligning ramps into crosswalks so that the truncated dome uh, surface is properly aligned directly into the path of travel is another very key way for creating a safe environment for street crossing. Placing cane detectable uh, barriers around outdoor seating is another really useful tool. So if you have a little fence around an outdoor seating venue, just ensure that you've got a horizontal bar at around six inches above the ground so that the cane user can detect it. A lot of times people just put like a rope that is at about waist height uh, around an outdoor cafe and that is not cane detectable. So basically edges and borders, high contrast, and then you know some some way of learning how to navigate around an obstruction are very useful. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one of the things that was that I learned from spending time with people who um, were blind or low vision out in the field was also the way they use sound to navigate, especially when it comes to crossing streets and the importance of being. Um, able to detect when it's a safe time for them to cross the street. And that can be useful when we're dealing with just very sort of regular signalized intersections that are, you know, four-way in the the sort of cross formation. But we have a lot of new intersection types now that are much more difficult uh, to use. The tools that we were taught years ago just using sound to know when it's safe to cross. One of the things that interferes a lot in sort of the outdoor environment is just the decibel level. That can be greatly problematic for people who are reliant on sound cues, which is why um, a lot of us rely much more on tactile cues and also on um, accessible pedestrian signals. Some of the new signals have rapid tick vibration that invokes when it's time to cross the street and also um, a directional arrows that basically point the direction of travel are uh, useful. And then the locator tones um, on the newer accessible pedestrian signals emit a tone so that when you're crossing the street and you're sort of seeking the other side of the street, you can utilize that locator tone to um, basically find the other the other side of the street as you're crossing over. I'm glad that you brought up those strategies for making um, signals more accessible. When you do that for people who are blind or low vision um, or deafblind, um, it really has a benefit to everyone. Um, I have a son who, an adult son with um, severe learning disabilities who benefits greatly from those cues, the arrow, knowing which button to push becomes a lot easier for him For him because he can see that arrow and he knows that that means that that's the, the crosswalk it, that he should cross at. Even those sound cues help him know when to cross. I think part of the challenge in 
engaging the empathetic side of uh, transportation professionals is that they're taught to follow standards and to not design things based on assumptions that may be incorrect. And that's a particular problem when it comes to accessibility standards. Um, there are a lot of gaps in our standards when it comes to meeting the needs of people with vision disabilities. Peggy, what's your take on this situation of not having good enough standards? And is it getting any better? Yes, it, it's definitely getting better more slowly than we would like. So basically the governing body or the standards body that, that handles disability guidelines in this area is the United States Access Board. And right now they're in a position where they cannot actually uh, develop new rules. The, the public rights of way accessibility guidelines is the document that will be reviewed and, and hopefully revised to include more guidelines specifically pertaining to people who, uh, with blindness and sight impairment. I would add that I think my brief work with the um, blind and low vision community has been so revealing to me because as a designer, I had the great benefit of having a colleague in my class um, when I was in grad school who was in a wheelchair. So I learned firsthand what it was like for people with physical disabilities to get around, but I don't think we learn very much about how people with vision disabilities navigate. And that's obviously a big gap in the guidelines. And um, so I think that we have to work harder to learn more about how we can design well for that community. And, and it's, it's different and challenging because there are so many different kinds of vision disabilities and deafblind people, you know, obviously you can't use sound with them. So it's a, a really challenging design conundrum to be able to incorporate all these different elements to make a transportation facility intuitive and easy to use. So, you know, folks with disabilities being out in the world, you know, in the very grand scheme is still pretty new. Um, uh, so we are in a, in a position where we are, well, the word scrambling does come to mind, where we are sort of trying to make the best decisions we can to determine these guidelines when they, when they will finally emerge. Um, and there is controversy and there's not always agreement. And so we, we're just in a state of creation and further development at this, at this time. I think actually scrambling is a good word for it because uh, um, there's not a lot out there that, that explains this dynamic of how to help someone navigate who has low vision. We, we, we recently developed a guide for Federal Highway Administration. Uh, we'll make sure uh, there's a link to this in our, in our podcast notes, but we were shocked at how little there was to um, on street design that helps people navigate um, who are blind or low vision. And it's really just the barest beginning of some guidance, especially for new street types, um, like streets that have separated bike lanes, which can make it infinitely more complicated for a blind person to navigate. And streets that are shared streets, for example, where you're really not defining a sidewalk area um, you're having all different users um, use the same space. That can be incredibly um, complicated and difficult for a person with low vision. 
that document, though, uh, is really useful. It does state, you know, clearly the types of features, if you will, that are necessary, like a separation between, you know, some kind of a border between the walking path and the, you know, the place where the street furniture goes. It may not specifically say every type of contrast level, uh, you know, color-wise, but it is a really great beginning for guidance on the newer street designs that are being basically implemented all over the country. So the document is, is I think, very useful, and I, I share it regularly. Great. I'm glad to hear that. So I, I want to get back to um, how we help designers empathize with the users and the people that are going to be um, experiencing the environments that they create. And I want to ask um, you, Peggy, about how we can bring these users in to the design community in a professional way and get their perspectives in a way that's useful um, and informative um, on both sides? Well, there are a few things. First, I think that the community honestly needs to sort of rethink how it thinks about disability, to not think of people as so different from ourselves to you know sort of open the mind a little bit um and 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 try to kind of remove some of the fear that does exist in some people's minds about certain aspects of of living with a disability so just you know sort of relaxing a little bit and and reaching out to communities is is absolutely crucial and there are agencies all over the, the U.S. You know, there are blindness agencies. There's the ADA National Network. Um, there are different conferences that people can attend, like the National ADA Symposium and, and others that I will basically post as links so that people can review them. So basically getting to know communities and, and really if you if we look around in our families, if we look around in our communities, we have people very close to us that we can ask. They may not be specialists in the field of street design, but just asking people what they would prefer and like and how they use space and how they get around in their lives is one of the best and most interesting ways of learning about how people live and how people problem solve. So that's, you know, a really organic way. Another uh, way is I, I think the urban design and planning and street design community needs to add students with disability recruitment as you're considering who, who should really be in the field. Um, we need everybody to participate in every field and developing young people to enter into the field of planning and urban design is going to be one of the most crucial ways. And then lastly, um, you know, we, there is a, it's a small but growing um, professional community of, you know, consultants that work with planners and share advice and expertise. Um, so there are ways to engage people with disabilities from very basic and anecdotal to, you know, much more formalized means. But I just think the design community needs to relax a little bit and reach out 
and be more inclusive in it within itself. So I'm glad you brought that up, Peggy. Um, you talked about recruiting people with a range of abilities. And I know here at Tool Design, we have a person who has worked here for, for many years who ha has low vision. And we have all learned a lot about, about the way he navigates through environments and, and his experiences. And I think as employers, we really need to make sure that our workplaces are um, are inclusive and welcoming of a range of abilities. And I know there's a lot of concern about the etiquette of um, the way we describe um, people with disabilities and the, the words we use. Can you speak to that a little bit um, and give us some guidance there? You know, you're always going to get a range, a range of opinions on, on anything. So I'm just going to give you my opinion. That is, be as clear as you would be in any situation. So, you know, if you've got some jobs that you think that folks with disabilities might be particularly good for, or if you've got places where you, yeah, where you think folks would just fit in well with, just say, people with disabilities, please apply. You know, we're looking specifically for your expertise. You might say qualified people with disabilities. That's pretty important. So I think just being super clear, and then when, you know, when people do apply, uh, well, welcome them. Don't, don't be surprised. You know what I mean? Uh, a lot of times, you know, things happen at interviews that are, can be really challenging where you submit a resume and then you go to the interview and then the folks are just shocked because you're blind or something. Um, just expect that. And I really think that relaxing and just being yourself and just knowing that people are people. People get disabilities. They then recover from them. They are born with them. It's very fluid, actually. And it does not need to be a big deal. Yeah, I think that is so important. There are a lot of designers that um, don't understand the issues and are a little afraid to open themselves up to what they might find from those interactions, especially when they don't have design guidance that nails down exactly what they need to do to help those people navigate through a street environment. Um, it's kind of a, a modest example, but there's a um, one of the engineers in our office is colorblind, um, and whereas maybe in his normal life might, people might see that as a as a drawback for him, we love it because we run every map by him to see if he can understand the color sequence. So we're able to use his so-called disability to our advantage to make better work. Oh yeah, that's a great example. Ta-da. <laughs> In the news, there's been um, some great articles recently about uh, how cities could be designed to accommodate a wider range of people. There's been uh, great articles about um, if cities were designed for moms and by moms, if cities were designed for and by women, and also older adults are, are a segment of the population that we often don't think about. Um, and, and those people have, have different needs than able-bodied young people. And I think it's important as designers to think about the full range of people who use transportation and address those needs. That type of article shows that many of the, of the uh, design ideas that folks have for one group really applies to many, many other groups. With respect to folks with disabilities, um, we never know when, when we might acquire a disability and we want 
things to be effective and useful. You know, as communication is so much better now with all of the various means that we have, we can learn more about what other folks want. And, and as the design community is incorporating more and more uh, voices, then the the design is going to show and is going to be a lot more inclusive just because of the people in the room creating those elements. And obviously, when we have the guidance, that's going to help a lot too. <laughs> but I just wanted to say that a lot of times, ideas that are good for one group are often really, really, really great for others as well. So things can be shared. Well, I think that that what is an excellent note to end on um, really great points about how um, one group can benefit from something that you might have designed for another group um, and and how empathy really plays a, a role in making sure that we understand those needs. I just want to thank our two guests for coming on the podcast today and sharing their experiences. Peggy Martinez, founder and owner of Creative Inclusion, and Kristen Losey, a senior urban designer here at Tool Design. Both of you are doing work that is so important, and I really appreciate the insights that you brought, brought to this topic of empathy in our work. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks for the opportunity to have this conversation. You'll find more information about Peggy Martinez and Creative Inclusion on her website at creativeinclusion.us and in the show notes for this episode, where we've also added links to the resources and guidelines we discussed. At Tool Design Group, our goal is to change the core values of our profession and focus on the needs of the people and communities we serve. We want you to be part of the discussion of the new ease of our industry. For more perspective on empathy and the other new ease, visit our website at tooldesign.com slash the new ease. Join the conversation on social media by searching for tool design and using the hashtag the new ease. The New Ease of Transportation podcast is produced by Andy Clark with help from Christine Lee and edited by K.O. Myers. I'm Jennifer Toole. Thank you for listening.